Welcome to Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast profiling the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity. Produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Hello and a very warm welcome to a brand new series of Against the Odds, Surviving M.E. This is episode one, Life Joy where today and throughout this series we are profiling the life of Dr. Rebecca Williams-Dinsdale, whose books, among other things, include Inspiring Ivy. As we were hearing in the introduction to this series, Rebecca contracted glandular fever at the age of 17, which quickly morphed into myalgic encephalitis, better known as chronic fatigue syndrome, shortened to the acronym ME which has claimed up to 30 years of her life so far. And while she's not over the condition entirely, she said she has staged quite a recovery. We're going to be learning about how she's managed to rebuild her life and how she found strength in the face of adversity. One thing she enjoys teaching is joy and helping people to find their life's resilience. Her website is teeming with hints and tips on how you can find your life's joy and resilience and where you can order many of her books. A Geordie by birth, and it is from Newcastle-upon-Tyne, where she joins me now. A very warm welcome, Rebecca. Someone I know who lives and breathes joy and is guaranteed of bringing a whole new meaning of the word joy into our lives. Well, that's very generous of you to say so. I certainly try. We shall hope to do our best for you today. How do you manage that? Well, I do try and appreciate tiny treasures of everyday life and then share that with my, I call them my life joyers. And the work that I do and the books that I write is called Life Joy which stands for love, integrity, fortitude, energy, joy, order, and you. And everything's really grounded in in those values. Does it bother you that your first name isn't Joy? (laughs) I think that's lovely. Well, my work is called Life Joy. So my books are Life Joy and um, my coaching is called Life Joy Coaching. So I've tried to get it in there. But I, I like my name because my parents thought carefully about it. You know, it was a gift from them to me. So I try and treasure that. When I was thinking about what I would call the books, I wanted the word joy to be in them. And it took me many permutations to get there. But I I thought your life's joy was your purpose and your light and your hope and your great offering. So I got joy in there somewhere. It just isn't as formal. That's interesting because Rebecca's a lovely name because it's sort of from the Hebrew verb meaning to bind or to tie and it means to uh, captive or captivating beauty. So some lovely connotations there. I think that's so endearing and so kind of you to say so. I think beauty is a state of behaviour and inner care. I did once hear that somebody said Rebecca meant um, knotted cord or uh, a heifer, as in cow. So, you know, there's a balance to all these things, isn't there? (laughs) It also meant good wife. So I shall tell my husband that repeatedly, good wife. Joy, tell me a little bit about that. What is it? 
Well, I think it's different perhaps for everybody. And I think depends on your circumstances, but it's been very grounded in appreciation for me, uh, hope, valor, courage, and love. So that it is a connection really of our hearts, minds, and souls with each other and ourselves and our creator and creation. So it's a multifaceted thing, but it's grounded in being grateful for the small things in life and that help you through no matter what your circumstances are. Absolutely. And there is this misconception that it is seen as a simplistic emotion, that it's sort of synonymous with smiles and happy days, but it's far more deeper than that, isn't it? I think so. There is great joy in simple emotions, sunny days, smiles, easy lives, easy hours, affection, appreciation, admiration. But there is also a need through the challenges in life, and many people have very long-term difficult challenges to manage, is to be able to navigate that, not only to be resilient, but to be a powerhouse of fortitude on an hourly basis. And I think joy is one of the tools that we need to keep going. It isn't always a thing that makes us instantly happy. It's a thing that makes us braver, wiser, stronger, firmer and deeper. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. And I love that phrase, a powerhouse of resilience. I liked it. I always think about batteries and powerhouses and that I first thought about it as being a powerhouse of prayer and the issue of how much energy we have in our tanks of life. Um, But of course, energy comes in different forms, doesn't it? Mental, spiritual, physical, emotional, but also that we have to keep replenishing, but we have to keep using it. To be a powerhouse of goodness in this world, we need to be brave. We need to be keeping giving, but we also need to be sensible enough to know that when when our batteries and our powerhouses need replenishing, it's always wise to do so. When did you really come to an understanding about joy and resilience? When did it really sort of solidify with you? Well, I think there are often pinpoints in our lives, and I I can tell you the date and the time. I had a very fortunate childhood until I was seven, and then illness hit us. All the world was safe. Everybody was happy. um, Careers were going magnificently. I had several very nice teachers in my life. And I had a teacher who saw that I hoped there was something of worth within me. And she had me take a school assembly when I was seven, which was quite a big thing, you know, with 200 200 children in front of you. But I had written something and I don't know what I had done, but she made me stand up in the assembly and I, I stood on her wooden big chair because I was so tiny and I read the piece that I'd written. I then read the prayers. I led the prayers and introduced whatever we had next. And I remember at that moment, it was like electricity was flying up my feet. And there was a sense of purpose and home and nothing I could articulate at seven. But I've spent the next 30, 40 years getting back to that feeling of electricity up the feet. Is that when you really felt then the synergy between you and your inner self, who you were, this is what I stand for, this is me. I would like to think so in retrospect. Otherwise, I just loved it. And I just knew that um, this was marvellous. And I was a very active, energetic child. And I I tried to work hard and be diligent and all the right things and well-behaved. But there was um, a vigorousness in my being, which was so peculiar when it was all taken away with so much illness. And that's probably 
The other key point was that I became ill at 17 and I had severe ME and I became ill on the 15th of November, 1991. It was a Thursday and that was a lesson of joy because, I mean, I'd been appreciative through my teens. Um, I'd had many blessings. I'd had a wonderful school. I'd had brass band, county youth choir, lots of church, lots of giving, lots of fundraising, lots of voluntary work. But when all of that was taken away overnight, the lesson of joy in all of that in unjust adversity that was protracted, it wasn't just a bad couple of months, it was decades, that I then had to rediscover that joy and redefine it as being something that was manageable when I had absolutely nothing in my tank. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to be looking more closely at your own personal experience as an ME survivor in a moment. But just on that point of challenges, because a lot of these life-changing experiences do come with a lot of challenges. And I wondered how likely is it or how possible is it to be able to convert that challenge into a strength? Well, I think that's a very perceptive question. And I have been observing great souls for a lifetime, trying to learn from them. And I've I've seen magnificence in octogenarian ladies who can hardly walk, but yet their light shines and they're still looking to give. I've seen brave young parents. I've seen people in chronic, chronically nasty conditions trying to keep going, trying not to be embittered, trying not to make a fuss, but yet get the help they need. So I think one of the things about finding strength in adversity is to first look for examples around you, because if you can see somebody else living that life, then I think it gives us hope and it gives us perspective and proportion. Because I always tell my coaching clients, however difficult their situations are, there will always be a thousand people on the planet who would swap with them. Mm-hmm. or even a hundred. And if we can immediately, whatever our situation is, understand that there will be people who will think that our challenges are minor and they wish they had our, you know, we would call them perhaps first world problems or whatever. Yes. Um, that gives you an immediate perspective. And the proportion of the challenge is about how long it's gone on for, how difficult, how disabling, how much pain, how much functioning is reduced, but also how much injustice and how much hourly difficulty it generates. So I think there is a trajectory of challenge and struggle. And if we can always try and see ourselves as fortunate in some position, I think we start from a better position. But there is no doubt there are some great difficulties in this world and some heroic people trying to navigate them. So I I wouldn't say there's an easy answer, but I think if we can manage to both count our blessings and be the blessing and know that we are of great value regardless of our abilities and our abilities to function, then I think that's perhaps the starting ground. And it's part of the challenge to try and find that sort of common ground, that starting point. It is. I mean, the the issue is that we are probably far more alike than we are unalike, and that at a soul and character level, the things we all value of trust, reliability, contribution, care, valour, humour, delight, great emotions. We all smile. We all have tears. They're all that same connecting force. And I kept noticing this. I worked for as a celebrant for a long time and took a lot of funeral services. So I saw 
great sorrow, great grief. And I saw the greatest moments of humanity in the simplest of gestures, a hand outstretched, a smile, a wink, a nod, a kind word, people holding their heads up when they were absolutely crushed. And that their example was such a privilege to see that it made me hopeful about the future on those darkest of days that people could be that brave, so wise, so magnanimous, so gracious whilst they were hurt was the definition of strength in weakness, um, despite what had happened to them. But also we're so easily distracted by personality differences or by cultural differences and all the things that actually separate us, if we listen and think, can still enrich us. So I, I have a poster in my study that says, everyone's different, everyone's the same. And I look at that on a daily basis, um, that my university had it as a poster for their equality and diversity department. And it had different colours of the symbol on the top with the same colour underneath. And I just thought that melting pot of who we are and who we can be is all the same in the end. And there's something really beautiful about that and about the joy that connects us. Against the Odds. Celebrating those who have conquered in the face of adversity with Philip Anderson. Where I'm in conversation with the author and life coach, Dr. Rebecca Williams, Dimsdale. Rebecca, going back to our earlier conversation on joy and life's resilience, got me wondering, what is it you are actually teaching here? Because it took me back to when I was studying creative writing at Keele University. And I do remember them saying to me at the time, whilst it's possible for them to teach the basic mechanics of creative writing, such as narrative, dialogue and syntax, for example, the one thing they couldn't teach was creativity. So if somebody was devoid of imagination, for example, it wasn't something they could tease out or nurture. I wonder if the same can be said for joy and life's resilience. Well, yet again, another joyous question. Um, I think there are three elements to the answer for me. Is The first one is I love that you appreciated Kiel. That's the place I wanted to go um, and uh, never got to go, but I managed to go back and do a visit. So I think that's a, a very precious connection of our friendship. Indeed. Um, Yes, I'm beaming at the thought you were there. Um, Well, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be like my mummy and play the piano in assemblies, run hymn practice and have the children all around my feet. That was what a teacher was to me. But I don't see myself as a teacher. What I see myself as, and I hope is, somebody who encourages and shares. And I think when you encourage you're not teaching, what you're doing is letting the other person learn themselves. So in some ways, I offer a life joy toolkit of strategies, of hope, of grace, of not just resilience, but of fortitude, a joyous fortitude in life to reclaim your enthusiasm, but also to be able to teach yourself and help yourself. So on my little logo, I've got um, Dr. Rebecca encouraging your life joy and whether that's done through books or talks or one-to-one coaching or courses it's about come come with me we'll walk with this together and we'll see where we get to and I promise you I'll give you my all and you might just be better from it all. 
And I suppose there's also the issue of seeing ourselves as individuals and all the challenges that that brings. The issue of understanding ourselves as individuals, as small units and part of a bigger group, is an issue of humility as well as one of intellect and understanding that we can chuckle at things at our own folly and know that we can chuckle at things that are true, but that we're not laughing at people or we're not being superior or denigratory or humiliating anybody, but that our connection ultimately often comes at the happiest times of our lives and at the saddest. It's the middle ground where we get you know, worried about things that often matter much less. And I think the connection between us at some level, despite often disappointing behaviour, despite difficulties, is the profound gift of, of our joy and our love. Oh, absolutely. And just to pick up on a point you mentioned earlier about counting one's blessings and being the blessing. And it's that being the blessing which I think is crucial here, because so often when we're helping other people in times of crisis, we can often forget ourselves and we leave ourselves out of the equation. It's good to be benevolent, but I think also we have to remember that we are part of the process. If you have a story of your own to share, or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email info at againsttheoddspodcast.com. Or for more ways to listen and to submit a guest request ticket online, visit againsttheoddspodcast.com. Earlier, you mentioned about there being family illness when you were about seven years old. I think it was your father who contracted a condition, but without going too much into that, just give us the context to it. And I'm very interested to learn about the impact that had on you as a young child and perhaps how it shaped your outlook on life, having witnessed all of that. Well, yet yet another very perceptive and compassionate question. Thank you. Well, my overriding memory is going to school was quite a sanctuary and they would ask how things were at home and were far more than just a teacher. They were our friend and they were my friend when I was little. I went to my grandmother's before and after school. So I was with my best pal and we would be up to our creative antics and reading and talking and I could see her worry and that was difficult. But also I could still be that scruffy tomboy who would be uh, full of enthusiasm. I could dredge some of that up and lighten the load a bit, really. So I I knew that. And I knew if I behaved well and tried to help, that I wouldn't be adding to their load. And that's quite a lot for a little girl to to perceive. So now I look back with a a quiet pride in that, really. Even though I was in in a school where there was a lot of poverty, there was often a lot of big Christmas presents, which is a strange thing. But my mother told me at Christmas not to tell the other children what I'd had for Christmas because she obviously knew I would have had more than they had. But on one particular Christmas, I remember I knew that dad had been off work for a long time and very ill. And I knew that the income was dropping dramatically. So I remember trying very hard not to ask for Christmas presents. And of course, everybody asks children, don't they, all the time. And I remember... I had to find something to ask for that was manageable, but that wasn't enormous because suddenly your income's gone. 
And this is really odd because I asked for a Parker pen because I didn't have a very jolly teacher at the time who used to tell me off a lot for being enthusiastic and impetuous and being me, really. I remember asking for this Parker pen because she said my handwriting was so bad Mm. that if I had a decent pen, it would be a bit less bad. And I remember thinking, well, if I get a posh pen, which was, you know, not be a huge thing these days, then that'll keep her quiet. It won't cost that much. But then something from that happened, which was really odd because we had to write letters for Santa Claus. The very sweet teacher saw this letter that I asked for a Parker pen when everybody else wanted bikes and big things. (laughs) And she read it out to the class as an example. And I went home and I didn't know this. And they told my parents and my grandmother. And I don't think in, in all of that difficulty, they were elated that somebody had recognized that I was trying. So I remember thinking, well, is this a good thing to ask for just a pen for Christmas? But it was a seven-year-old's attempt to not make any trouble and make things calm and better. So if if I had a seven-year-old who did that now, I would congratulate them. The irony is, is that all the things that certain individuals who, who, who denigrated that enthusiasm, all those qualities now are the things that have been most valued in the books, in the services, in the talks, so there's a there's a great irony to the circular notion of the soul there, really, about what's valuable and what's valued. I, I look at children now who've got poorly parents, and I think I think about how they must be feeling when they can't fix it for them. That that's a difficult feeling. Is that what you were thinking at the time? Oh, I think so. I think when you see people you love suffer, Matt, the innate human response is to try and fix or help. And sometimes you can't do that, but sometimes you can make things just that inch better. And there's an exhilaration to that. So your problem solving skills become in many respects ingrained within you that then make everyday normal life really wonderful because you're so thrilled to just be up and going. But were you ever assuming the carer's role? And was that oh, quite I, challenging? I've done a lot of care. Yes, I've done huge amounts of care. I've done huge amounts of, you know, um, you know, as a as a teenager, I did the food shopping. I did all cut the lawn. I cut the. I washed the car. You know, I was part of the team, and the team had to contribute. You know, I'm, I'm very good at odd things now. My husband thinks it's hilarious. I'm good at decorating. I'm good at gardening. I'm good at, you know, knowing what to do with the car. Even though my energy is quite limited, because I was doing those things when I was young. That then put me in all sorts of arenas as a teenager, which normal teenagers wouldn't be in because I, I understood what it was to contribute and be a grown-up, really. So, it, I mean, there was, a, there was an outcome of it that, that led me to a, a maturity probably beyond my years that was wonderful. But surely there must have been times when you were watching all the other teenagers or children when you were very young enjoying themselves and you had to spend your time at home. Surely that, there must have been conflict there sometimes. I think I was aware that people had very abundant, luxurious lives when they could, you know, go on big holidays and do normal things. And we were scrabbling around for energy to just cope. But the ability of being just coping or not coping was so fundamental to us that I almost detached from all of that normality. I've got pals who go away for six weeks every summer and were upset this year that they didn't go away. And I thought, my goodness, you've missed one holiday. It doesn't mean anything. The last time my dad went on holiday was 1989. So the the normal frustrations of life do not touch me at all. Not even back then. 
Well, they, they made me a bit sad that we couldn't do it, but I was so focused on surviving and appreciating what we had that if you spend your life wishing for things you can't have or can't manage, you just live in misery and you won't get out of that. So I, I did work hard from an early age to be pleased for other people because I also remembered that there were children in my school on free dinners and didn't have enough money for the trip. I saw poverty at a level of aspiration and material possession that was so astonishing that even when we were in trouble, we were living an abundant life. Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. That's Dr. Rebecca Williams-Dinsdale there, my guest on Against the Odds. And more information on life's joy and resilience is available from drrebecca.org.uk. That's Dr. Spelt D-R. Where you can sign up for Rebecca's newsletter and learn more about her publications, including Inspiring Ivy, a character we'll be learning more about later in the series. That just about brings things to a close for episode one, Life Joy. Up next, episode two, Lost Time. At that time, I was on about 40 weeks a year in bed. Essentially, I went in that bedroom in the autumn and I came out in the spring. They are not hours that you can watch television or read or do any crafts or have visitors. That is a low-grade, horrible existence. Thank you for listening to this edition of Against the Odds, the bi-monthly motivational podcast celebrating the lives of those who have conquered in the face of adversity, produced and presented by Philip Francis Anderson. Whether you have a story of your own to share or you would like to be involved with the podcast in some other way, email info at againsttheoddspodcast.com or visit www.againsttheoddspodcast.com for more information and to submit a guest request ticket. This podcast is the property of Philip Francis Anderson. All rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the contents in any form is prohibited other than the following. We welcome you to download and play the podcast and share with others for personal use. Please acknowledge Against the Odds motivational podcast as the source of the material. You may not, except with our expressed written permission, distribute or commercially exploit the content.